0: Gospel of Mark, chapter one, picking up in verse thirty-two. Let us pray. Lord God, our triune God, we approach Thee now. We thank Thee for the singing of praises unto Thee. We thank Thee for the reading of Thy Word that we have it. That we have it. In, we have it complete. Lord, may it sink down into our hearts, O Lord. Lord, that it might enable us through faith in Thy power to execute Thy will here on earth. Lord, now we come before Thee, ready to hear the preaching of Thy word. Lord, please help me, Thy poor servant, to rightly and accurately divide Thy word, to expound it and apply it. Lord, help us all to hear thy word and the truths that it contains, that we might follow thee and know thee all the more. Jesus, be thou exalted. Be thou exalted in this preaching, in our hearing. Keep us from distraction, Holy Spirit. Help us to resist Satan. That he might not take the seed from us as it falls Lord we bow before thy majesty revealed to us in thy word it is great, O oh God it is great indeed Holy Spirit help us now in Jesus name we pray all of these things amen Mark chapter one verse 32 through 39, we're continuing on in our exposition. Verse 32, and at even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And When they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I might preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and cast out devils." The title of today's sermon is Three Aspects of Christ's Ministry. Dear congregation, there is great confusion in our day as to what Christ did while he was on earth, what his ministry was. Many people believe that Christ simply walked around being nice, giving to the poor, quoting fortune cookies. Some others think that Jesus was just a means to an end to get the Holy Spirit here so we could have all sorts of cool experiences in church. Others think that he came only to reveal to us the mysteries of the last times and to teach us about eschatology and warn us to prepare for the rapture, and that's the extent of it. Still many other evangelicals in our day think that Christ came into the world to be people's homeboy or their boyfriend. They have cavalier, confused, And convoluted views of Christ's earthly ministry. So what did Jesus do in his earthly ministry? What were some of his emphases? We will look at three from our text this afternoon. Three aspects of Christ's earthly ministry. Three emphases. Number one, healing. Number two, prayer. Number three, preaching. Healing, praying, preaching. First, preaching, or first healing, excuse me. Another glimpse at Christ's divine authority is seen for us here in verses 32 through 34. And at even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because... They knew him. It was at even when the sun did set that the sick were brought unto Christ. This could be for a few reasons. Possibly they came at night either because some of the people still stumbled at such work being done on the Sabbath. So for the Jews, the Sabbath ended in the evening. And so they might have still stumbled at the fact that healing could be done on the Sabbath. Or it was because it was a time of day that was cooler and easier for the sick to be transported and carried to Christ, to travel. In either case, let us learn that the Lord's Day is a day for doing good, especially in engaging in spiritual duties. These duties do not end when we leave the church building. Just because we've come to church and heard the sermon and sang the songs and read the scriptures does not then end our Lord's Day duties For it is the market day of the soul, as the Puritans often said. It is a feast for our soul. It is good to come into the house of the Lord and to praise him and hear preaching. But it does not end there. The rest of our day, even until evening, should be given unto the Lord. These duties do not end when we leave the church building. but are to be continued throughout all the day. We can learn that from Jesus' example here. Now, after leaving the synagogue... Christ went into the house of Peter and he healed his mother-in-law. We saw that last week. Now after this, many more sick persons are brought to him for healing and to have demons cast out. Here on the Sabbath, Christ labored into the late hours of the night in spiritual duties, doing spiritual good and being concerned with the kingdom of God. Notice also in our text that the whole city, verse 33 having heard of the fame, remember we saw the fame that went out because of Christ's work in the synagogue, his fame having gone out and what he had done in the synagogue, the whole city then brought unto them all who were among them, who had quote, dise-, who were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. That's verse 32. So they'd heard the fame of what Christ had just done in the synagogue, how he would taught with power and authority and then healed, and now they brought unto him all among them, who were sick and maimed and possessed. These people had heard a strange and powerful thing. There was a teacher in Israel who taught not as their scribes, but with authority and with demonstration of power. He could apply the medicine of the scriptures to the heart as well as expel the diseases and devils from their body. So was quite a thing. So hearing this news, they must have been overcome with excitement, with hope as well as with a sense of their great need. Therefore they gathered all who were infirmed among them and brought them to this great and powerful teacher. They had diseases that needed healing. They had demons and were tormented with them that needed to be cast out. They had a sense of their need. And now seeing a cure for their need, they went out in faith. So too it is good for us. Also who are so diseased with sin in the flesh who still have the flesh battling against us who still fall into so many errors and sins and transgressions who are so diseased with sin and so tormented by the enemy of our soul it is good for us also to then apply ourselves to this great God and savior that we have Christ the time and the time of healing the time of Expelling of the enemy has not ended in our day at all. It has not ceased. Indeed, it is still among us. For we too are laid low with the burdens of sin still. With the disease of sin. With the oppression of the evil one. So therefore, we must continue to come unto Christ. We must continue to come unto Christ. Simply because Christ is not physically here healing physical bodies of physical diseases. Does not in any way negate the need that we have the disease of our soul, sin, to be cleansed by him, and for us to come unto him for protection from the enemy and cleansing of our soul from sin. As he healed the bodies of these people and cast out the demons from them, so too our great high priest will still heal our souls of sin's sickness and cause the great accuser of our souls to flee from us. Dear Christian, our greatest need, our greatest need, is not the healing of this body that we have, this temporary tent that we dwell in, but the healing of our souls. And Christ is fit for both, as we see in the scriptures. Next, we see that Jesus healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils. By many here is meant all. Is meant all that were brought to him for this purpose, because the parallel passage on Matthew eight six says that he healed all that were sick. So all that were brought to him were healed. Anyone who was sick that was brought to Christ at this time was indeed healed. They came to him for healing, and healing and healed they were. Christ shall surely turn none away that come to him in faith. He shall turn none away. Christ makes this promise to the world in John 6, 37. He says, All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. How many multitudes, even in our day, would come to Christ to be made whole in their bodies? If all the churches opened up and power from on high was given them to heal anyone who came through their doors, who is sick of any ailment, Great multitudes would come flocking to every church, would they not? To have their bodies made whole. But few there be in our day, which will come to Christ to be made whole in their souls, to be cleansed of sin, to be healed from their depravity. It is better to enter into heaven maimed, as Christ says, than to go to hell whole. Yet churches often sit vacant and empty in our day because no one cares for that. But if the body be healed, if their wallet could be whole, they would come. Our minds, dear believers, therefore must be set on something higher when we bemoan our present bodily condition. I know many of us here are tired and sore and Burdened with disease and pain, I myself am in pain most often in my body. And when we bemoan this present condition that we are in, our present sufferings, then we lose sight of what is truly important. When we focus our eyes on our bodies, on our circumstances, on our sufferings, We lose sight of what is truly valuable, namely, eternal life with Christ, now and hereafter. Eternal life with Christ now and hereafter. We fellowship, we commune with Christ now. We have him through the healing of our souls, sickness of sin, now and hereafter. Let us not focus on simply the body as we heard in our scripture reading from the New Testament earlier, Colossians 3, 1-3. through Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. As we know throughout many of Paul's epistles, our life is not our own. Our life is Christ. And here he reminds us that our life is hid in Christ. Thus, we focus on the physical life, the temporal life. Whether it's greatness or it's sufferings. We miss the point of true life, eternal life. Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Notice Christ healed diverse diseases. Any and every disease that he was met with. There is no disease. There is no case that he was met with that he could not heal. Any case, any disease that was brought to this great physician, he could cure Jesus is sovereign Lord over all creation, including all infirmities, all viruses, all illnesses, all cancer. Nothing comes to pass without his decree. All things which we have are given to us from his hand. Recall, dear believer, that when the man who was born blind, in John chapter 9 was brought to Christ. His disciples then asked him, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. What caused him to be, to be born blind? Was it his sins? Was it, or was it his parents? Now what was Christ's response? Did he respond that it was due to chance? To fate? To evolutionary naturalism? That he was born blind? No. No. Did he say that it was due to the grievous sins of his parents and that he was born blind to chastise and punish them? No. Did he say that it was due to the man having sinned in a past life and now in his new reincarnation he has to pay for the sins that he had previously done in the last life? And that's why he was born blind? Still no. But what he did say was, quote, "...neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest." In him. The goal was the glory of God. He was born into this state of blindness. For the glory of God. To demonstrate God's power. In and through Christ. Now every single one of us. Who has any kind of ailment. And we will all gain ailments at the end of our life and die. Whenever that may be. Our deathbeds are coming. So we just sang. When we have those come upon us, it is for the glory of God. That doesn't mean that it's going to be healed, but it will be used. It will be used. Christ is Lord over all situations and all circumstances that befall men. Our theology often falls apart in the midst of trial and suffering, does it not? In the midst of hardships, then our theology goes out the window especially as Reformed believers. But it should not, for it is for the glory of God. God has given these things to us. Now from this, let us learn that our situations, dear believer, are never too unique, too dire, or too hard for Christ. All of the diverse diseases brought to him were healed. So our situations are never too unique, never too dire, never too hopeless. Never too hard for Christ. He is Lord over them. And he will do with them as he pleases. In accordance to his own law of love. Toward us. To work them for our good. If we bring all of our cares and anxieties to him. He is then able and willing to work them for our good. Not our idea of our good. But his. We are told that he also cast out the demons. Indeed these demons were surely the cause of some of these physical ailments, as we see throughout the Gospels, that oftentimes a demon was cast out and it was connected with the illness the person was suffering from. But being possessed by a demon itself is itself a great ailment that vexes the man or woman who possesses the devil, whom the devil has possessed. And Christ healed these also. From this we can learn, dear Christian, that no one is too far gone. No one is too far gone. While there is breath in their lungs, they may yet use it to cry out in faith to Christ. Who worse than Paul? He said he was the chief of sinners. He persecuted and murdered and imprisoned men, women, and children in the church, in the early church. Yet God made a fool of him and turned him into the great apostle who wrote most of the New Testament text. No one is too far gone while there's breath in their lungs. Now, it may be highly unlikely that they be saved. But as Jesus reminds us in Matthew nineteen twenty six, with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. As we see here, even when a person has completely given themselves over to the devil, into, their own possess- into the devil's possession, yet Christ may grant them, quote, repentance to the acknowledging of the truth that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. That's what Paul tells Timothy to pray in 2 Timothy 2:26. However, with these demons, Jesus our text says suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him or you could render it that they knew him, verse 34. There's a few possibilities as to why Jesus did not suffer Or allow the devils to speak. First, maybe he did not allow the demons to speak. Because he did not need their testimony. He didn't need their testimony. They were not called to preach the gospel. They were not called to proclaim the wonderful works of God. Therefore, they are silenced. Even the demon's testimony of Christ's glorious person and works is but cursings to him. The particular privilege, and hear me now, the particular privilege of being proclaimers of Christ's glorious person and works on earth is reserved for his disciples, his children, us. It is our privilege to preach his gospel, to proclaim his glories. If the devils are forbidden from praising him, and the angels spend all eternity doing so, let us then not neglect the use of our mouths to declare his excellencies. Ah, dear believer, if we neglect that duty and that privilege, the very rocks themselves around us may take our place. As Jesus says in Luke nineteen forty. Another possibility as to why he did not allow the demons to speak could be because the people might wrongly believe that Jesus was in league with them, that he was part of them. It was evident to those that heard Christ's disciples throughout the New Testament, especially in Acts, that they had been with him. It was evident to those who heard the apostles and the disciples that they had been with Christ. Now, if these demons were to come announcing him, the people might wrongly think Christ, a friend and leader of demons, who could only cast out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebub, as the Pharisees would later slanderously accuse. Therefore, he silenced them. Another option is that he did not allow the demons to speak because they might make him known before the appointed time. God is sovereign over when, where, and how the gospel is proclaimed, as we saw in our confession reading. No man nor demon shall thwart that. So he silenced them. Another option is that he did not allow the demons to speak because they would cause a disruption, as we saw in the previous account in the synagogue. Now, in the ordinance of preaching, for us in the New Testament church, there is to be order. One is to prophesy at a time. If someone speaks in a foreign language, it's to be interpreted, everything done in order. This has nothing to do with the person in the preaching office. It's not about personalities or respecting the pastor or the minister, necessarily. We are not to make disruptions. We are not to do things out of order because we have respect to the office of preaching itself and the word preached. So those who cause disruption through outbursts in churches play the part of the devil. And I'm not saying when people say, Amen... Or tell it like it is, brother. I'm a Baptist. I like that. I wish there was more of it. But I'm talking about when somebody stands up and says, Oh, excuse me, you missed a point. We've had this in this church. It happens to me more often than I've ever heard of in a church before. People have stood up countless times, probably four or five times since we planned this church, and raised their hand or, or started talking. Not your turn to preach. The Bible says that. Raise their hand, excuse me, there's times for questions afterwards. One time it threw me off so bad that I began to, what is it you have to say? And it threw the whole thing off. From now on, I go like this, put your hand down, stop talking. And our deacons and our leaders in this church will drag you out if you continue now. We'll throw you to the curb, not your chance to speak. We do this out of reverence for the office and the word preached. It's to be done orderly. So Jesus was not going to give these demons an opportunity to preach. He silenced them. That's another option. But ultimately, I think the best option is that he did not allow the demons to speak because they did not have a right to utter his name even. They had no right or privilege to utter his name. That right is given to us, his children, alone. Us alone We are the ones who are now allowed to call him father, our father. Matthew Matthew 6, 9 and Romans 8, 15 tell us that. That's for his children to call him, not demons. We are commanded to be heralds of his gospel. We are commanded to call him father and have that distinct privilege and right. Now, let us dwell on this for a moment, dear believer. It is to our lips alone that the distinct right of speaking his name is given. Specifically, Father. Angels do not call him Father. We alone are given that right and that privilege and that duty to call him Father. It is our duty. We are to praise his name, pray in his name, and proclaim his name. This is our duty as believers. And not only our duty but our very birthright to shout, Jehovah, Jehovah, our covenant God. Not whatever name some of these modern neologians give to God, but his true name, Jehovah. Not something borrowed from the Baal worshipers, but the true name of God, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. That is his name. Regardless, the right is ours, dear believer, not the wicked and not the demons. So let us use it. Second point this afternoon, second emphasis of Christ's preaching, first was healing, now we see praying, verses 35 to 37. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him, and when they had found him, they said unto him, all men seek for thee. Jesus' life was indeed a life of prayer. A life of prayer. John 17 is an entire chapter taken from the book of Christ's prayer life. Still, even now, Jesus stands on the right hand of God, interceding in our behalf. Jesus is a praying mediator. A praying God. Notice a few points. After a full day of ministry, a full day of ministry, healing, preaching, casting out devils, and this likely extending late into the night, Jesus must have been physically exhausted. Any of us who have ever gone out and done any kind of ministry, maybe evangelism, maybe helping out somewhere, maybe preaching, whatever it may be, you know how exhausting it is to labor with someone in counseling and preaching and opening up the scriptures and laboring for the gospel. You know how exhausting that can truly be. And Christ must have been absolutely exhausted. The entire city was brought to him. All of the sick in that city were brought to him. And those who had brought them too. People wanted to hear what he had to say. We're not told everything that took place there, but you can imagine. What, what does he have to say? What was he saying as he cast out these demons, as he healed? What kind of ministry was he doing? A great ministry indeed, but a tiring ministry. He was exhausted physically. So nothing would have made more sense than a full night's rest, right? Yet, we read that Jesus rose up and went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed, and this very early in the morning while it was still dark. While it was still dark, that strange time between day and night, when the sun is rising, yet it is still pitch black. He went out while it was still dark, early in the morning. There are a few possible reasons as to why Jesus went out to pray, rather than remaining in bed. First, to set an example for us. Now, as the true son of David, Jesus rose early in the morning to seek his father. David said in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. It is good for us to give the first moments of our day to God. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher of the 19th century, said that he always attempted to see no human face until he had seen God's face. That was easier to do because he was unmarried. But still, the sentiment is true and good. That we seek God first. That we come to God first. Praying men, praying people, are always useful people. And praying people give the first part of their day to seeking God in prayer. Anyone I know that is a praying person, that's the first thing they do. Now, nothing, and hear hear me, nothing is more useless than an orthodox believer that does not pray. It's the most useless thing in the world. I'd rather have an atheist. Orthodox believers that do not pray are absolutely nothing. I listen to many great theologians when they preach, who, when they preach, they have no power. What they say is tidy enough, but when they say it, it falls to the ground as chaff. For they do not know who God is. They can tell you who God is, but they have no experiential knowledge of who God is. There's no power. There's no thrust. They do not preach as one who has authority. They preach as the scribes, retelling facts, giving good exegesis. That is useless, more useless than anything. All of our learning should drive us to prayer. All of our study should cause us to yearn for God more. That's the purpose. Thus, our lives must be lives of continuous prayer, as the Apostle tells us, beginning with the first part of our day. As Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, so too we ought to give the first and strongest, richest portion of our day to God. Those who begin the day with God will likely be those who close the day with God. This was Christ's practice. Given to us for an example. May it be our practice as well. William Gouge, the great Puritan, said that he would meditate on all sorts of normal things to try to get his mind focused on God. When he went to bed, he would pray and think about as he laid down in bed, he was laying down in the grave. That he would soon be with God. And that he was dying to sin and to self. And when he rose in the morning, his first thoughts were, I'm rising to life in Christ. And so this man could keep a continual communion with God and meditation upon him in prayer. And this man, it is said that all of his family, he had 13 children, two wives at different times, obviously, many servants. All said that they never heard one single mean word from his mouth. He was never angry, they said, never seen it, because he held close communion with the God of peace and joy. So too, let us follow Christ's example and so insofar as he follows Christ by giving the first part of our day to God. Another reason that Christ went out to pray is to gain strength. As a man, Christ required strength to live this life to do the mighty deeds he did. But as a man, and as a man of faith, Christ knew that his true strength in life did not come primarily from food and drink and rest. Rather, it came from God, his Father. During his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus truly came to know that his strength came from God and not from physical things. He spent 40 days in prayer and fasting. And when Satan came to tempt him, telling him to turn the stones into bread, he could speak from experience and saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus had much work to accomplish in his earthly ministry, and he needed much strength to accomplish it. His food His strength, his sustenance needed to give him the strength to accomplish the tasks that were before him. And those very things were not the physical bread, the physical drink, and the physical rest, but was dwelling with his Father in prayer and accomplishing his will. Remember, Jesus told his disciples at the well in Siloam, when they came to him and said, we've brought food, we've brought water, he said, "My meat, my sustenance, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work." John 4:34. Another reason why Christ went out to pray is to fellowship with his Father, whom he loved. Maybe the simplest answer to things is sometimes the best. Jesus merely loved his Father, and he loved the Spirit, and he desired to be in their presence because he loved them with a perfect love. He loved being with them. This is a great reminder to us that prayer is not only a means to get help, to ask for things, for supplication. It's those things as well. It's not even just a means of getting strength. God, empower me, strengthen me to do thy will. It is that as well. But it is also the means by which we commune with the triune God, our Father, which is in heaven. If we love God, we will desire to be with him. We will desire to spend time with him in prayer, just as Jesus does here. Is it so strange, exegetically, that Jesus just wanted to be with God, his Father? Notice also that Christ went into a solitary place to pray, our text tells us. The Puritan Matthew Henry writes this, Though Jesus was in no danger of being distracted, nor of temptation to vain glory, yet he retired to set us an example to his own rule, which he gave, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. Secret prayer must be made secretly. Those that have the most business in public and of the best kind must oftentimes be alone with God. They must retire into solitude there to converse with God and keep up communion with him. So, though we may pray to God just as well in a crowded room as in a closet or a desert place, it is still well that we sometimes find a secluded, empty place to pray. Why? Because we are not like Jesus. We are truly tempted, and we are truly in danger of being distracted and are tempted to make our prayers impress others. Therefore, we need to make a habit. We need to make a habit of finding time for secret prayer as well. Remember, Jacob went out into the fields to meditate at even. David in the caves to pray, and Jesus in the desert places. We too must find time and place to seek God's face unfettered with this world's distractions or the temptations to show off in our prayers before others. Look next, Peter, and they that were with him, then come out to find Jesus. Where'd he go? Let's go find him. And they went out to look for him just as his mother and Joseph did when he was in the temple, left behind when he was 12. Peter was confused as to why Jesus had gone off by himself. Now, when all of the people, when all the people were seeking Jesus for healing, when Jesus could be doing good, when Jesus could be revealing himself publicly and preaching and healing, why was he now rather off by himself? Why would Jesus waste precious time to minister to people and to heal them by going in to a solitary place to pray? They sought him, and when they found him, Peter said, Basically, what are you doing out here praying by yourself, Jesus? All men seek for thee. They did not understand the truth, Peter and those that were with him. They did not understand the truth any better than his mother and Joseph did, that Jesus needed to be about his father's business, Luke two forty nine. Now from this, let us learn. That we must bring our minds into conformity to the will of God. What do I mean by that in this context? Well, we must have the mind of Christ. We do not see things as God sees them. What man thinks is important, what man thinks is necessary, is often not what God thinks is important and necessary. Peter thought it would be better for Christ to be in amongst the people, preaching, teaching, healing, and casting out demons. But Jesus knew that it was more profitable for him to be in his Father's presence, communing with him and preparing for the rest of his ministry. So let us, dear Christian, seek God's will in each season of life and pray, Lord, what shall I do for thee, O God? What is thy work to accomplish through me? Not, what do I want to do? What do I think is the best thing to do in this situation? Our third point this afternoon is Christ's preaching. So the last emphasis we're going to look at today. First is healing, his praying, and now his preaching, which is verses 38 and 39. Peter says, all men seek for thee. And Jesus said unto them, let us go into the next towns. That I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth, and he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. As we saw last Lord's Day, the primary purpose of divine miracles is for the confirmation of divine words. I'll say that again the primary purpose of divine miracles is for the confirmation of divine words. Christ's healings demonstrated to the people that he taught as one that had authority, as we saw in verse 22. Our Lord was first and foremost a preacher, a preacher, and he was the greatest of all preachers. The notion that Jesus does not care about doctrine or that Jesus does not care about the expounding of scriptures is one of the most dangerous false notions of modern evangelicalism. Jesus, rather, put a high premium on the Word of God, indeed, the highest of anyone. While on earth, it was his chief office in life to be a preacher. He did not spend his life, his earthly life in the temple, instituting and keeping up ceremonies like an Aaron, nor did he spend his life ruling and reigning as king in Jerusalem like a David. Rather, he chose an entirely different calling, the one of a prophet, to preach daily. Jesus knew what power lay in the truth proclaimed and preached. In his high priestly prayer, Christ praised the Father that his disciples and we who should believe through their message might be sanctified through God's truth adding, thy word is truth, John seventeen seventeen. So we must labor, dear Christian, to be certain that what we believe about God is true about God. That what we believe about God is true about God. And the only way this can be done is by understanding God's word. And one of the means that God has given to this end is the preaching of his word. Notice, Jesus' disciples still misunderstood the purpose of his miracles here. They still misunderstood. Peter said unto the praying Christ, All men seek for thee. It's as if he said, Jesus, you came to do miracles. Go do more. Peter was most concerned about the physical healings that still needed to be done back at his house. There was more work to be done, Jesus. More sick people have arrived. Jesus tarried no longer in prayer. There are many works of healing yet to be done. And indeed, there were many more works for Jesus to do. But it was not the work of healing the body at that moment. But it was the work of healing the soul of the people. It was the work of healing the souls of the lost sheep of Israel through preaching. Jesus answers Peter, in verse 38, he says, "Let us go into the next towns that I might preach there also, for therefore came I forth. Teaching was the chief work of Christ's life. He had not come to be made king of a physical nation, nor to be Israel's on-called doctor. He came forth from God to preach and teach, to proclaim unto all, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Mark 1, 15. That's why he came. Jesus came forth from the Father to announce the coming of God's kingdom, to preach the glad tidings of the gospel. Now, in the parallel passage in Luke, the synoptic gospel Luke, Jesus says to them in this place, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. Luke 4, 43. God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly one. His kingdom shall be established through spiritual doctrine, not physical domination. True, Jesus, as we read in Acts ten thirty eight went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, but all that in order that his preaching would gain a wider audience, as we saw last week. Christ always, throughout the Gospels, highlighted his preaching. His preaching. Truly, truly, I say unto you, that was his thrust. Only when pressed on the truthfulness of his doctrine... Did Christ ever point to his deeds? In John chapter 10, Christ gives the people, the Jews around him, sound doctrine. He says this in John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I will give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. And here's the key of his doctrine right here. I and my father are one. Now, stumbling at the doctrine that he had just preached, the Jews prepared to stone him to death. And only then does Jesus respond in verse 32. Many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of these works do ye stone me? It's only after they question his doctrine, say that he's a heretic and needs to be put to death, that Jesus begins to to point at all to what he has done. The Jews said that it had nothing to do with his miracles. His miracles were profitable enough. Rather, it was because of his doctrine that he should die. They said, for a good work, we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because That thou, being a man, makest thyself God. It's in verse 33. His doctrine was the issue. Not the humanitarian good that he did. His doctrine was their issue, not his deeds. And his doctrine was his own emphasis, not his deeds. Christ did not come to the multitude saying, Verily, verily, I do unto you. Rather, he said, verily, verily, I say unto you. That was the emphasis. Christ came to preach and to preach the truth. He came to set the captives free, dear believer, to open the blind eyes, to open the deaf ears. The healing of the soul, to bring true healing. The healing of the soul of its sin. In Christ's redemptive work he as isaiah says has hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows the griefs of the griefs of our soul namely the sorrow of our sin for as isaiah continues for us he was smitten and afflicted wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed So, in this greater work of salvation, it is not simply the body, dear believer, that is being healed and restored, but something far greater. It is the chastisement which we deserve for our rebellion against God that is done away with in the death of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis. Our sins are washed away. The crimson stain of our rebellion, which made us as the leper's spot, is made white as wool through his cleansing blood. The body, our body, is of little value if we have not godliness. As Paul said in First Timothy 4, 7, and 8, "...exercise thyself rather unto godliness." For bodily exercise profiteth little. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Thus, dear believer, preaching rightly applied and rightly received is of more value than the healing of our bodies. And that is why Jesus came forth from his Father to preach and teach that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many the miracles only served to give greater authority to his message that's why when you see these faith healers on tv or in bethel and hillsong it's completely disconnected because even if they do have these miracles their doctrine is putrid why would god be confirming their doctrine which is unbiblical and heretical with signs and wonders The miracles were not an end in and of themselves. The ministry of Christ was a ministry of itinerant preaching. In closing, let us therefore not despise preaching. Paul commands us to despise not prophesyings. And as I prophesy to you now, despise it not. If Christ was a preacher and one who put such great emphasis on preaching, let us therefore love. And cherish preaching. We must all be preachers in a way. True. Both in evangelism to those around us. And also in our conference with one another. In our fellowship with one another. We should be preaching to one another. The truth. We must cherish the act of preaching. But especially when we sit under the exposition of God's word. The proclamation of God's word in preaching. Let us cherish it. Dear believer, every sermon you hear might be your last. What hast thou done with it? What have you done with it? Did you improve it? Did we pray over it? Did we meditate on it? Or did we leave it where we received it? There is a low premium placed on preaching in our day. Many evangelical churches have replaced the exposition of God's word from the pulpit for the examination of entertainment from the stool. Many evangelicals even mock at sound, doctrinal, expositional preaching and view it as out of touch or irrelevant. But such people would do well to consider what they are doing. They are mocking the very office that Christ himself thought was his own most important office. They are mocking the means with which Christ has given his church for the perfecting of the saints, for the working of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.12. Now granted, we might not sit under the most skilled minister, nor the most eloquent, nor the most learned expositor, but the sermons that we do hear, dear believer, are ordained by God for us, and they are given as his grand ordinance for the converting of sinners and the edifying of the saints. It is the very office which Christ said, I came forth to do. Therefore, seeing that we sit under the preached word and seeing that such an office was Christ's chief office on earth, let us be quick to gain all that we can from the sermons we hear. Dear congregation, in examining these three important aspects of Christ's ministry, let us learn to apply them to our own lives. Let us cherish the healing of our soul from sin Let us give ourselves to prayer and communion with God and let us place preaching as the highest means of grace in our life. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before thee once again, O God. We ask, Lord, that thou wouldst apply thy word to our hearts. Lord, that we would see thee our great healer, our great shepherd, O oh Jesus, our great physician, to be altogether lovely, to be worthy of our praise and adoration and service. O oh God, burn these aspects of thy ministry on earth upon our minds and let us follow thy example. In Jesus' name, amen.